sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. Two, if you want to go totally crazy. You can also get more information on this episode and other issues of the week by signing up for YDHTY's email newsletter at YDHTY dot com slash news now for the past few episodes we've discussed the political and economic realities that make increasing access to affordable health care so hard chief among them is the fact that most of us are convinced we could solve health care with one reform if only the people we disagreed with would get out of the way and that is what made my conversation with this episode's guest so refreshing Michael Chernu is a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School and a member of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. His work includes research on the outcome of accountable care organizations, otherwise known as ACOs, a payment model that seeks to reverse the inflationary effects of the standard fee-for-service model we all know and don't love by incentivizing providers to seek lower cost options that provide equal care to patients as more expensive alternatives. And in our conversation, Michael challenged the orthodoxies of both left and right on the healthcare debate and makes a pretty compelling case for how and why free markets can play a role in addressing the rising costs of healthcare. Two notes. Number one, these views reflect Michael's opinions and do not reflect those of any organization or institution he may be affiliated with. Secondly, my one goal in this conversation was to refer to accountable care organizations as ACOs and not AOCs, and I almost succeeded in that. Power of branding, everybody. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. One of the things I heard you say, and I'll paraphrase, is that you know when we look at the healthcare debate, and this is something I learned in the past couple conversations I had, people generally fall in one of two camps, which is the free markets solve everything camp, or the government involvement solves everything camp. What are the the free market absolutists, and what are the government involvement, or let's call them like single payer absolutists, missing in this debate? Yeah. So um, I think on both sides, the proponents of free market solutions tend to believe uh, that markets can work very well and they compare reasonably well-functioning markets to uh, really dysfunctional government systems, which is possible. And proponents of government intervention often compare a well-functioning government-run system to uh, a market that has all the flaws that we know that markets have, particularly in healthcare. And so um, our implementation of both markets and government solutions are flawed. And so one has to compare one's perception of the flawed path that you will be on, be it market or government oriented, to the other flawed path. Mm -hmm. Some of that, um, in the government case, for example, um, it's 
sort of easy to say, sure, you may like a single payer system if it's run by a government that you support. But uh, since many of those people are on the political left, I will say, do you want that government run system if it's run by the Trump administration? Um, and they might. But the point is, execution matters on the government side. Execution matters. Um, and you have to accept that while it may work well if run well, it may work poorly if run poorly. On the market side, I think the challenges are that there's a variety of things we've known since the 60s and work by Ken Arrow uh, that healthcare markets are particularly challenged. There's information problems, there's risk, which necessitates insurance. Insurance distorts market functioning. So we have to find structures to prevent some classic economic um, weaknesses of markets um, in standard, literally decades old texts. The two main ones would be considered moral hazard. People use too much care, the wrong type of care if they don't have to pay. And adverse selection, insurance is fundamentally a pooled product. The cost of insurance depends on who else is in your insurance pool. And there's a tendency of insurance pools to break apart. And it becomes a policy problem how we hold them together. So a unregulated healthcare market will not function the way an unregulated market would for most other products where you may observe the product attributes better, where the cost of producing the product doesn't depend on who buys the product, where there's a range of other informational problems uh, that you don't have to face. So um, my general sense is, and I, you should know, I'm a reasonably free market economist, but um, I don't believe for a second that a laissez-faire approach to healthcare policy would be useful for anybody. And so the core question is how can you use government to um, uh, solve some of the problems that you would have in a market-oriented system? And the answer to that question depends a lot on how well you think the government can function. In the extreme, I think a reasonable person who's optimistic about the ability of the government to function um, might say, the whole government system uh, would be better uh, than a system where the government tries to just manage the market because the market is unmanageable. Mm -hmm. That's reasonable if you believe the government will be able to execute on that vision um, well. And if you worry that the government will underfund health care, they won't enable uh, the innovation that we want, they won't support the access that we need, they will not support um, access for some of the populations that we care about, then you're very worried about giving the government that level of control. And so uh, I'll let the listeners decide how functional they think the American government is, but whatever their answer is, it should spill over into their views about government health, government managed healthcare. Do you know, one thing you, you mentioned in there too that I wanna jump back to is the idea of utilization and how insurance can distort the utilization of healthcare. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. People get sick, it's bad. They want to use healthcare services, which is important. Mm -hmm. And uh, the advocates of markets would suggest that uh, the healthcare services they use, how much, where they get the care, etc., should be governed by market forces. And when you're covered by insurance, you have no market signals that are sent. So you might buy. Uh, an expensive drug when a less expensive, equally effective drug would exist. You may go to an expensive 
uh, outpatient clinic as opposed to a physician office. You may visit the physician for a medical condition that probably you should not visit. You should you could demand a surgery or a antibiotic for a viral infection that probably is not called for. But there's no market signals to guide utilization. And I think the um, evidence is very clear through randomized trials from ages ago to a whole range of other um, pieces of evidence that, in fact, patient behavior is influenced by out-of-pocket costs. Patients mm -hmm. do a very bad job, by the way, of differentiating the care that they should buy and the care that they shouldn't buy in a clinical sense, but it certainly does matter. But if you were to make all care free, I think you would find people would use more expensive care. They would uh, use more care. They would choose it for more expensive sites. You would see investment in services that might not be needed. So uh, in a world with insurance and no other constraints, you would worry about um, efficient utilization. And much of what's developed in the American healthcare system is mechanisms, be they market or government mechanisms, to manage that tendency for um, patients who are shielded from any of the fiscal consequences of their decisions from uh, consuming all the care they might want, including the care that doesn't provide value. And I think that's the key point. There is a fair amount of care that doesn't provide value that people use, partly because of their incentives and partly because of the incentives of the providers that provide that care. Yeah. What are some, what are some examples of that? So there's a whole initiative that was sponsored by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation called Choosing Wisely that gave, specific, gave some specific examples. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of excess imaging in situations where people probably shouldn't have uh, imaging procedures done. There's uh, use of branded drugs when generic drugs might matter. There's use of antibiotics when you don't need antibiotics. There's a whole range of lab tests. Part D testing is one that comes up frequently that people probably shouldn't get. The uh, Choosing Wisely campaign identified over 400 services that are used that uh, medical evidence suggests probably shouldn't be used. And I should add, it's typically not the service. It's typically the combination of the service and the medical instance in which it is used. We have known since the work that Jack Wenberg did up at Dartmouth, again, decades ago, that there's widespread variation in utilization of healthcare across the country with very little evidence that the places that are using more care are actually having better outcomes. I generally do whatever my doctor tells me. So I don't necessarily ask for healthcare. And it's partly because I'm a little scared of them and partly because I don't consider myself qualified to administer healthcare to myself. Am I just a really good patient? It, it, are the major, is, is the majority, or I guess that it's a, it's a long-winded way of me saying like, are the, is, is this excess care or is this patient driven or is it doctor driven or is it a partnership? It's a, it's a combination. Certainly when people go to the physician, most people are going to behave the way you do and yeah. do what their physician says. Although you'll see when they have to pay out of pocket, oftentimes they don't. They don't take their drugs that they should take, mm -hmm. for example, if they have to pay a lot out of pocket. But I think the part that is patient-driven is often the demand for care. When do you go in for care? So if we, if we make care free, you may go to the doctor in situations where you'd be better off staying home and waiting. Um, it's very hard for you to tell what those situations are, by the way. But they've found that uh, for the average person, so there's some differences based on patient characteristics, but for average, say, employed population, if you make care free, people go to the doctor much more often and they're not healthier. And once they go to the doctor, the medical system tends to do a bunch of things, order tests, react to the tests. And again, it makes this discussion complex because 
it is unreasonable to expect individuals to know enough about medicine to know when they do or don't need to go to the doctor, which is sort of a separate discussion. But it is the case that if you charge them more, they will tend to go less. And for the most part, on average, health won't suffer. But there will be examples of people that may avoid the doctor in cases where they really, really should have gone. And you'll see this in some of the hot. So there's also very high value services, certain types of cancer screenings, for example, where if you charge people for them, they won't go get cancer screens that they really should get. And so there's um, on the pro uh, market side of this, there's uh, a lot of energy around the concept called value based insurance design, which tries to tailor cost sharing to reduce the barriers to use of high value services and increase the barriers potentially to low value services. But the implementation of that is a lot more complex than it sounds when we're having a sort of conversation on a podcast. And, and getting back to something you said earlier, too, one of the drawbacks of government sponsored healthcare is it only works or is only perceived to work in so much as you trust the government and you trust the people in power. In, in the case of these other programs, who's ultimately deciding what's a high value service versus a low value service? Who's ultimately deciding what patients can yeah. choose from? So there's different ways of doing that, but I think most of the payers use a very, I'll call it conservative definition. So for example, for identifying high value services, there's a whole um, body of work measuring quality in healthcare. And you tend to find services in the high value category that fit into um, management of chronic diseases. Take your insulin if you have diabetes, mm -hmm. um, get eye exams, uh, get cancer screening, things like that. Um, there's a bunch of work in that sphere. In terms of low value services, this is why choosing wisely was so uh, important where they actually asked the medical community to give instances where there was low value care. There's probably much more low value care than the medical specialties identified. There's a range of um, uh, academics and other people in the medical space that do studies about the effectiveness of different types of uh, medical care. And so the, obviously, you know, there's journals that are full of very detailed questions. Uh, when should you get revascularized? Who needs a COVID shot? The whole slew of questions like that, that um, the medical research community investigates and different groups use that evidence to make decisions about when services are high value and when they aren't. And there is, of course, challenges with implementing that, any of that with precision. And of course, the problem is if you err on the side of doing whatever the doctor says, uh, you'll find widespread variation in pattern, practice patterns with very little evidence of improved health associated with a greater utilization. And if you err on the side of being restrictive in access, you will find instances of people that are not getting the care that they really need. Mm. So what makes this debate challenging and what I think makes it frustrating is people grasp at anecdotes of situations where they knew somebody that should have gotten care and was denied as evidence that we should not deny any care, permit any care that a doctor orders. Alternatively, people grasp at anecdotes of someone that used care that was completely wasteful. And in many cases, I was in a uh, event a few weeks ago where someone had a probably benign spot on their lung and went in for a biopsy that was probably not needed. And the lung collapsed and that set a whole cascade of events going forward. Ultimately, the person passed away from sepsis in the hospital. Uh, that's a tragic story. I don't mean to make 
light of it in any way, but it should not be taken as an indicator of, well, then no one should check out any symptoms they have. It is a complicated, nuanced uh, set of decisions, and we have to try and set up an infrastructure that will allow us to do the best as possible, but we simply don't have the ability or the information or whatever to make all of this work perfect in all situations because of the interplay between the patients and the providers and the carrier. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 I, I mean, I'd imagine that's a challenge for policymakers, that's a challenge for somebody like yourself because ultimately these decisions, it seems to me, are, are best made in aggregate. You know, they're best made in looking at the whole of the data and determining the outcomes, but it's really easy to find these fringe cases to bolster your argument for one side or the other, right? Absolutely. And I would say we need to have mechanisms that encourage all the stakeholders to behave in ways that we would like them to behave. And that essentially means get access to care that is needed and discourage overuse of care and overpaying for care. And I think we haven't spent a lot of time on the prices, but a ton of the problems in the U.S. relate to the prices of care. So maybe we'll delve into that. But in any case, the challenge here is because healthcare is so complex, you need the delivery system to have some flexibility. You're not going to micromanage it from a policy point of view because no one knows the very complex things that are going on with a patient better than the doctor. So you need a healthcare system that gives that flexibility, but it has to do so in a way that's not giving it a blank check. And that's okay. the core tension. Got it. Got it. And that, that kind of brings us to the ACO model as well. Um, and and maybe before we get into that, can you explain to the listener what, what that is exactly? Sure. Um, let me start by contrasting it to what is the more common status quo. The status quo mechanism for financing healthcare is known as fee-for-service, and it's very intuitive. You go to your doctor, you go to the hospital, and the doctor or the hospital get pays for what, gets paid for what they do. They get paid for an office, they get paid for a lab test, they get paid for reading a lab test, they get paid for doing a surgery, they get paid for doing the anesthesia for the surgery, they get paid for a, uh, the set of services that they deliver, and that's why it's called fee for service. And there's elaborate systems of coding all of those different services, and you might think they're simple, but they're not. So, for example, if you take a, a service like a CAT scan, which is a imaging procedure, it's not as advanced as an MRI, it's more advanced than an X-ray, and say, well, what's the price for a CAT scan? It turns out that there are a lot of prices for CAT scans because there's a lot of different types of CAT scans. In fact, there's a lot of prices for any one cat type of CAT scan, but for any given CAT scan, uh, there'll be different prices based on what part of the body is being imaged, what type of contrast agent may or may not be used, um, a whole bunch of other things related. You know, not being a doctor, I'm sure I will say things that are clinically nonsensical, but there's a, you know, there could be 50 different codes for the type of CAT scan. And because of the way that physicians are paid, those payment systems don't just shift money from payers to the providers, but they also provide incentives. So if something's very profitable, sleep studies, right? A lot of people have sleep issues in this country. Sleep studies are important. I'm not saying anything bad about sleep studies. But if the payment for sleep studies are very lucrative, you will find a lot more people get encouraged to get sleep studies, maybe more than needed them, for example. So that's fee-for-service. And the challenge in this complicated fee-for-service world is getting the fees right in either the private or the government sector. In, so in contrast, to talk about this ACO model, the ACO model's uh, an example of a broad category of payment called alternative payment models, where essentially what happens is 
the payer, say the insurance company or Medicare, in the case of ACOs, redefines the product in various ways to not be these very small micro sets of services, but to include, say, care for a patient for an entire year in the case of the ACO, which then essentially says to the delivery system, accept this budget and you have a lot of patients, 5,000, 10,000. So accept this budget for all these patients and um, you'll be rewarded if you use fewer services than the budget was based on and you'll have to pay a penalty if you use more. It gives, in any particular case, the delivery system has flexibility about what services to deliver to Dan, but at the end of the year, they will look at all the services delivered to the population and um, reconcile with what the budget was. So the physicians, if they decide to do a lot more, for example, they provide a lot of imaging that's not needed, they would exceed the budget and they would have a penalty at the end of the year. And that's basically the way an ACO model would kind of work. It's more, uh, it's called population-based. You're being paid at a population level. There's an extreme capitation. Most ACO models aren't quite like capitation. They're similar to capitation, but they have features that aren't quite as strict as certain capitated models. And there's a range of other types of alternative payment models that aren't, say, population-based that also are being explored. But all of them are designed to give, uh, loosely speaking, a budget to the delivery system to care for populations of people, hmm. which contrasts so, fee-for-service where there's no budget. You get paid for what you do. Yeah. So ultimately, if I'm a doctor under, under the ACO model and I'm recommending a CAT scan, for example, I might recommend a location based on cost and might factor sure. that into my decision. Sure. And I think it's important to understand that the conceptualization of medicine where there's a doctor that gets paid and what they do, you know, they get paid for is increasingly not the right way to think of the American healthcare system. Most physicians work for relatively large organizations. And so the organization is what's getting paid and the organization will put in place processes to manage some of those things. So Hmm. how often do you refer out? Whom do you refer out to? What are the criteria for when surgery should be done? And they will remove some of the very direct financial incentives to physicians to do varying things. And that's not, American healthcare system is very heterogeneous. There are certainly examples of uh, places where um, physicians are working, say, in their own practice, a solo practice, or maybe one or two doctors in a practice, and they're going to be more closely related to the fee-for-service incentives than you might be if you work for a large delivery system. But these alternative payment models aren't really well suited for those small practices because there's a lot of risk. You don't have enough patients to spread that risk. So they tend to be targeted towards these big delivery systems, and the delivery systems tend to be able to make choices like, we're going to change our referral patterns to try and push patients towards high-quality providers, but maybe those that aren't as aggressive as other places. They may look to find ways to get people to go to a physician's office instead of to an emergency department. They may look to find ways to use nurse practitioners to manage certain types of care that otherwise might have gone to a more expensive provider. There's a whole range of nitty-gritty ways that the delivery system might be able to achieve efficiencies that these more flexible payment models encourage. And in the fee-for-service world, you're not encouraged to do that. I'll give you one other example. Um, A lot of the choosing wisely uh, services that they've identified as wasteful involve things like imaging tests prior to low-risk surgeries. So if you're going to have a low-risk cataract surgery, do you need to have a full cardiac workup? Like that type of thing. And again, for your listeners, I'm an economist, not a doctor. Please don't uh, 
complain about my medical knowledge. But in any case, uh, Choosing Wisely has a number of recommendations about not doing these types of imaging procedures beside, before certain types of surgeries. And um, in a fee-for-service world, if you just don't do those imaging, the delivery system loses out on the profits associated with all that testing. In one of these new payment models, they don't. And so you at least have a payment model that gives you some flexibility around keeping some of the efficiencies. Um, and that, of course, needs to be coupled with a quality measurement system because the concern would be that the system now is incented to give you too little care. Mm-hmm. And how do you make sure that now that the incentives have flipped from doing too much to doing too little, that we're not getting substandard treatment? And that is a legit concern. And there's a lot of effort to try and find structures to prevent that and to monitor that. Yeah. And that was that you kind of brought up my next question, which is, are there safeguards in place or are, are these still, as you said, under development? This is a combination. As I said, I think earlier on, none of these things are perfect. I mm-hmm. think the greatest safeguard, of course, is overwhelmingly uh, physician professionalism guards against much of the worst type of stinting on care. That at the core, physicians and healthcare systems want to provide good care. There's other uh, protections, liability, for example. If you're denied really the standard of care, um, there's a system, you know, there's a lot of problems with the liability system, by the way, I think. That's all a separate podcast. But at least to some extent, there's some protections there. And there's a whole infrastructure trying to measure outcomes, patient experience, and a whole range of other outcomes to try and make sure the care doesn't uh, deteriorate. And most of the evidence, by the way, of these models suggests care, if anything, gets a little bit better. But that doesn't mean we should assume it's always going to get better. Uh, It is something that needs to be worked upon and monitored. But there's a lot of effort to put those safeguards in place. You know, what we keep getting back to is this idea that People don't like being told no in general, but when it comes to healthcare services, they don't like being told no either. And and to what extent do you think Americans' desire for choice in healthcare is a driver of the cost and maybe will always make healthcare in America more expensive than other parts of the world? Yeah. I can't quantify it, but it surely does contribute to it. In fact, I think it is one of the core distinctions between a government and a uh, market-oriented system. The market-oriented system gives people a lot more choice about what they want. One of the challenges in healthcare, of course, is healthcare because of the financing is inherently a collective product. So if I opt out of an insurance plan because of whatever reason I opt out, if all the healthy people opt out, it raises the costs for everybody else. And that might be okay, but then if I become a sick person, I'm now stuck and I've lost this protection against the possibility that I contract a chronic illness and now I can't get, I can't get insurance for that type of risk. And so um, there is a fundamental challenge in the American healthcare system about how much autonomy we want every actor in the system to have acknowledging that in healthcare, because of the interconnectedness of the financing in particular, um, that the ability to give everybody autonomy has ramifications for other people. Because the, I mean, again, Medicare is instructive. When we didn't have an employer, when people were retired, so they weren't getting their coverage through their employer on Medicare, you would see the actual health insurance market completely deteriorate for people that were over 65. And Medicare is a program that sort of enforces that level of pooling. Um, And if you look at the exchanges under the Affordable Care Act, 
there's a whole structure around those exchanges in order to promote pooling. That provides some restriction on people's choice, but it does so with the intent of holding the insurance market together in a, in a complicated way. The same is true with utilization of care. If you give everybody autonomy to get whatever care they want, that's fine. But if you agree that they don't have to pay any of the price, it becomes a little problematic. So when people are seeking care that they believe is useful, but in fact, there's no evidence to support its usefulness, they may want the autonomy to get it, which is one thing, but it's another thing to say, I want the autonomy to have access to care and I want you to pay for my access to that care. And that's where this tension of how to get insurance to work becomes complicated in a world where we want everything, but we don't necessarily have to pay out of pocket, want to be able to pay out of pocket for everything. Jumping back, I, I realize I, I totally skipped past the, the AOC model, but you know, this is a model that's been piloted in a few states. At a high level, what have been the outcomes of that? So the AQC uh, and the ACOs, that is sort of a Medicare version of them. Did I, I want to pause. Did I say AOC? You did. Ugh. I'm keeping that in. I was trying. I, I, I knew this was going to happen on recording. So the ACO and AQC model, I'm going to correct myself. Sorry. Didn't right. mean to interrupt. Go they're, on. No, I, I understand. They're both, uh, they're both examples of these population-based models. In general, um, in the commercial sector, there's wide variation in prices. I mentioned briefly earlier the challenge we have in the U.S. about getting the prices appropriate, and there's a bunch of issues with how competition does or doesn't work in the American healthcare system with consolidation and a bunch of other things. It is a, a lengthy conversation. But the result of the structure of the American healthcare system is very high prices and very variable prices in the commercial sector. So in the private sector versions like the alternative quality contract, which is implemented by Blue Cross Blue Shields of Massachusetts, there's other versions other carriers have, you find there's an incentive now for providers to refer to high quality, uh, lower price settings or options. Um, and you saw a fair bit of that in the alternative quality contract implementation. And then you see some reduction in use, disproportionately targeted at low value services. And you see virtually no evidence of a reduction in the quality of care. In fact, there's some evidence that quality care is a little bit better. In fact, some evidence it's even better for uh, disadvantaged populations. Although I should caution listeners that a lot of this evidence is based on the implementation in one setting by one group at one point in time. So what's generalizable is a, is a broader separate question, but it's quite positive. In the Medicare space, there's not as much variation in prices because Medicare sets the prices. So you do see savings, you see reductions in use of hospitalizations, you see uh, reductions in the use of hospital outpatient departments were expensive in, uh, in favor of office physician offices, which are less expensive. You see a lot of reduction in post-acute care. So that's a big issue in the Medicare population. One of the big causes for variation in spending in the Medicare population is post-acute care. It's hard to know how much post-acute care patients should receive. And when the incentives change, you see what it seems to be the evidence suggests more efficient use of post-acute care. The savings are small, um, a couple of percentage points. So we have a much bigger problem than has been solved by the early incarnations of these types of models in Medicare. And there remain questions about, should we continue to develop these models? There's a lot of activity going on at CMS on uh, improving and developing these models, um, or should we abandon them uh, in favor of other types of structures. 
Uh, I believe that developing them is important for a range of reasons I'm happy to discuss, but it remains a somewhat controversial issue. Getting back to how we started the conversation too, one of the one of the mistakes that I've seen that folks make in the healthcare debate who are outside of the healthcare industry is that they're they're looking for a silver bullet. And I I, I think to look at any one measure as this as the solution is a mistake. What are some other policies out there? What are some other innovations out there that you feel can can help manage costs and help get us to that ideal state? So I think probably the biggest, and I think maybe one of the most controversial, is the role that private health plans play. And in Medicare, that is exemplified by the Medicare Advantage Program, which is the part of Medicare that uh, allows people to enroll in these private health plans. And the private health plans, uh, in my opinion, have demonstrated the ability to provide comparable, if not somewhat better care in some cases, at a lower cost than the traditional Medicare program. The other uh, type of activity that I think gets a lot of attention is more pro-market oriented in terms of changing benefit designs and controlling utilization. But underlying all of that, independent of those types of things, there's a lot of consolidation in the healthcare space. So big systems buying up practices, and that has enabled an increase in prices uh, with wide variability in prices. And so independent of managing utilization in any particular way, I think there's a lot of attention that needs to be paid to how we manage the prices of care, particularly on the commercial side. And that's a complicated question, but what seems clear is that traditional antitrust concerns are very important in the healthcare space, both because of consolidation that has happened in the past and consolidation that will happen in the future. The other thing I haven't talked a lot about is prescription drugs. Mm. um, uh, Prescription drugs uh, present another broad conundrum. Um, The American healthcare system is uh, very inefficient in how we manage prescription drugs. We pay a lot for the drugs. The pricing mechanisms are really outrageous. Some of the behaviors associated with pricing of prescription drugs are really outrageous. And there's an enormously complex distribution system where a lot of the money is going for activities that might not actually be supporting innovation. And in fact, the innovation being supported might not necessarily be the highest value innovation. So we have uh, a real challenge. Uh, The Inflation Reduction Act takes a stab at dealing with this. But like most of these things, it's a step uh, in one direction, and we're just going to have to wait to see how it ultimately gets implemented, and that's what's going to matter. But I think what you'll see in healthcare is, as the status quo gets worse and worse, people seek solutions that may themselves bring about other problems, but at some point you're just not willing to suffer the status quo when you see some of the things that are going on. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did and would consider leaving a nice review, I'd appreciate it. And as always, if you didn't and could keep this between us, that would be wonderful. You can also get more information on this episode and other issues of the week via the YDHTY email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Lastly, questions, feedback, love letters, hate letters. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me direct at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. Now, 
In this conversation, we revisited a recurring theme throughout the series that much of the debate on healthcare centers around who you trust to administer it. And I think Michael's point about how comfortable single-payer advocates would be under a plan administered by the Trump administration illustrated this perfectly. I also think the answer to who do you trust is probably no one. We could expect a government-administered plan to be the subject of cuts and funding debates, just as we could expect an entirely privatized system to continue to drive up costs for profit. And as Michael pointed out, the best option seems to be one where the situation becomes so untenable that voters demand their elected officials take action. However, this is only as effective as that elected official. And all of the reforms Michael mentioned, such as antitrust regulation for providers and addressing the practices of the pharmaceutical industry, would infringe on the territory of industries with huge amounts of financial pull in Washington. And in that sense, the absolutist arguments we have about fully embracing free markets or government control of healthcare just help distract voters from the fact our elected officials have their hands tied on implementing any meaningful reform. It's America's plurality system of elections, you knew I was gonna say that, that makes it easy for politicians to deflect blame on either socialist conspiracies or heartless capitalism, and reforming this system to one that rewards candidates based on their appeal to the true majority of voters, I think is the first step towards solving this and a whole slew of other complex problems. See, we are right back there again. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.